0: november the smoking butt end of the year november's dark iron has come to tarker's mills a strange exodus seems to be taking place on main street the reverend lester low watches it from the door of the baptist parsonage he has just come out to get his mail and he holds six circulars and one single letter in his hand watching the conga line of dusty pickup trucks Fords and Chevys and international harvesters snake its way out of town. Snow is coming, the weatherman says. But these are no riders before the storm, bound for warmer climes. You don't head out for Florida or California's Golden Shore with your hunting jacket on and your gun behind you in the cab rack and your dogs in the flatbed. This is the fourth day that the men led by Elmer Zinneman and his brother Pete, have headed out with dogs and guns and a great many six-packs of beer. It is a fad that is caught on as the full moon approaches. Bird season's over. Deer season, too. But it's still open season on werewolves. And most of these men behind the mask of their grim get-the-wagons-in-a-circle faces are having a great time as Coach Koslaw might have said, doodly damn right. Some of the men, Reverend Lowe knows, are doing no more than skylarking. Here is a chance to get out in the woods, pull beers, piss in ravines, tell jokes about pollocks and frogs, and shoot at squirrels and crows. They're the real animals, Lowe thinks, his hand unconsciously going to the eye patch he has worn since July. Somebody will shoot somebody, most likely. They're lucky it hasn't happened already. The last of the trucks drives out of sight over Tarker's Hill, horn honking, dogs yarking, and barking in the back. Yes, some of the men are just skylarking, but some, Elmer and Pete Zinneman, for example, are dead serious. If that creature, man or beast or whatever it is, goes hunting this month, the dogs will pick up its scent, the Reverend Lowe has heard Elmer say in the barber shop not two weeks ago. And if it or he don't go out, then maybe we'll have saved a life, someone's livestock at the very least. Yes, there are some of them, maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen, who mean business. But it is not them that has brought this strange new feeling into the back of Lowe's brain, that sense of being brought to bay. It's the notes that have done that. The notes, the longest of them, only two sentences long, written in a childish, laborious hand, sometimes misspelled. He looks down at the letter that has come in today's mail, addressed in that same childish script, addressed as the others have been addressed, The Reverend Lowe, Baptist Parsonage, Tarker's Mills, Maine, 04491. Now, this strange, trapped feeling. The way he imagines a fox must feel when it realizes that the dogs have somehow chased it into a cul-de-sac. That panicked moment when the fox turns its teeth bared to do battle with the dogs that will surely pull it to pieces. He closes the door firmly, goes inside to the parlor where the grandfather clock ticks, solemn ticks, and talks, solemn talks. He sits down, puts the religious circulars carefully aside on the table, Mrs. Miller polishes twice a week, and opens his new letter. Like the others, there is no salutation. Like the others, it is unsigned. Written in the center of a sheet torn from a grade schooler's lined notepad is this sentence. Why don't you kill yourself? The Reverend Lowe puts a hand to his forehead. It trembles slightly. With the other hand, he crumples the sheet of paper up and puts it in a large glass ashtray in the center of the table. Reverend Lowe does all of his counseling in the parlor and some of his troubled Parishers smoke. He takes a book of matches from his Sunday afternoon at-home sweater and lights the note. Lowe's knowledge of what he is has come in two distinct stages. Following his nightmare in May, the dream in which everyone in the old home Sunday congregation turned into a werewolf, and following his terrible discovery of Clyde Corliss's gutted body, he has begun to realize that something is, well, wrong with him. He knows no other way to put it, something wrong. But he also knows that on some mornings, usually during the period when the moon is full, he awakes feeling amazingly good, amazingly well, amazingly strong. This feeling ebbs with the moon and then grows again with the next moon. Following the dream and Corliss's death, he has been forced to acknowledge other things which he had, up until then, been able to ignore. Clothes that are muddy and torn, scratches and bruises he cannot account for, but since they never hurt or ache, as ordinary scratches and bruises do, they have been easy to dismiss, to simply not think about. He has even been able to ignore the traces of blood he has sometimes found on his hands. ...and lips. Then on July 5th... ...the second stage... ...simply described... ...he had awakened blind in one eye. As with the cuts and scratches... ...there had been no pain... ...simply a gored, blasted socket... ...where his left eye had been. At that point... ...the knowledge had become too great... ...for denial. He is the werewolf. He is the beast. For the last three days... He has felt familiar sensations, a great restlessness, an impatience that is almost joyful, a sense of tension in his body. It is coming again. The change is almost here again. Tonight, the moon will rise full and the hunters will be out with their dogs. Well, no matter. He is smarter than they can give him credit for. They speak of a man-wolf, but think only in terms of the wolf, not the man. They can drive in their pickups, and he can drive in his small Valair sedan. And this afternoon, he will drive down Portland Way, he thinks, and stay at some motel on the outskirts of town. And if the change comes, there will be no hunters, no dogs. They are not the ones who frighten him. Why don't you kill yourself? The first note came early this month. It said simply, I know who you are. The second said, If you are a man of God, get out of town. Go somewhere where there are animals for you to kill, but no people. The third said, End it. And that was all, just end it. And now, why don't you kill yourself? "'Because I don't want to,' the Reverend Lowe thinks petulantly. "'This, whatever it is, is nothing I asked for. "'I wasn't bitten by a wolf or cursed by a gypsy. "'It just happened. "'I picked some flowers for the vases "'in the church vestry one day last November, "'up by that pretty little cemetery on Sunshine Hill. "'I never saw such flowers before, "'and they were dead before I could get back to town. "'They turned black.' everyone. Perhaps that was when it started to happen. No reason to think so exactly, but I do. And I won't kill myself. They are the animals, not me. Who is writing the notes? He doesn't know. The attack on Marty Koslow has not been reported in the weekly Tarker's Mills newspapers, and he prides himself on not listening to gossip. Also, as Marty did not know about Lowe until Halloween, because the religious circles do not touch, the Reverend Lowe does not know about Marty. And he has no memory of what he does in his beast state, only that alcoholic sense of well-being when the cycle has finished for another month, and the restlessness before. I am a man of God, he thinks, getting up and beginning to pace, walking faster and faster in the quiet parlor where the grandfather clock ticks solemn ticks and talks solemn tocks. I am a man of God and I will not kill myself. I do good here. And if I sometimes do evil, why men have done evil before me. Evil also serves the will of God, or so the book of Job teaches us. If I have been cursed from outside, then God will bring me down in his time. All things serve the will of God. And who is he? Shall I make inquiries? Who was attacked on July 4th? How did I, it, lose its eye? Perhaps he should be silenced. But not this month. Let them put their dogs back in their kennels first. Yes. He begins to walk faster and faster, bent low. Unaware that his beard, usually scant, he could get away with only shaving once every three days, at the right time of the month, that is, has now sprung out thick and scruffy and wiry, and that his one brown eye has gone a hazel shade that is deepening moment by moment toward emerald green it will become later this night. He is hunching forward as he walks, and he has begun to talk to himself, but the words are growing lower and lower and more like growls. At last, as the gray November afternoon tightens down toward an early anvil-colored dusk, he bounds into the kitchen, snatches the Valer's keys from the peg by the door, and almost runs toward the car. He drives toward Portland fast, smiling, and he does not slow when the season's first snow starts to scurl into the beams of his headlights, dancers from the iron sky. He senses the moon somewhere above the clouds. He senses its power. His chest expands, straining the seams of his white shirt. He tunes the radio to a rock and roll station, and he feels just great. And what happens later that night might be a judgment from God, or a jest of those older gods that men worshipped from the safety of stone circles on moonlit nights. Oh, it's funny. All right. Pretty funny. Because Lowe has gone all the way to Portland to become the Beast, and the man he ends up ripping open on that snowy November night is Milt Sermfiller, a lifelong resident, of Tarker's Mills, and perhaps God is just after all. Because if there is a first class grade A shit in Tarker's Mills, it is Milt Strumfuller. He has come in this night as he has on other nights, telling his battered wife Donna Lee that he is on business. But his business is a B-girl named Rita Tennyson who has given him a lively case of herpes which Milt has already passed on to Donna Lee who has never so much as looked at another man in all the years they have been married. The Reverend Lowe has checked into a motel called The Driftwood near the Portland-Westbrook line, and this is the same motel that Milt Strumfuller and Rita Tennyson have chosen on this November night to do their business. Milt steps out at a quarter past ten to retrieve a bottle of bourbon he's left in the car. And he is, in fact, congratulating himself on being far from Tarker's mills on the night of the full moon when the one-eyed beast leaps on him from the roof of a snow-shrouded Peterbilt ten-wheeler and takes his head off with one gigantic swipe. The last sound Milt Strumfuller hears in his life is the werewolf's rising snarl of triumph. His head rolls under the Peterbilt his eyes wide, the neck spraying blood, and the bottle of bourbon drops from his jittering hand as the beast buries its snout in his neck and begins to feed. And the next day, back in the Baptist parsonage in Tarker's mills, and feeling just great, the Reverend Lowe will read an account of the murder in the newspaper and think piously, he was not a good man. All things serve the Lord. And following this, he will think, Who is the kid sending the notes? Who was it in July? It's time to find out. It's time to listen to some gossip. The Reverend Lester Lowe readjusts his eye patch, shakes out a new section of the newspaper, and thinks, All things serve the Lord. If it's the Lord's will, I'll find him and silence him forever.